Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 39. I'll read this for us. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You can be seated. Good morning once again. You may have noticed by now that my voice isn't quite up to par what it normally is. In fact, I don't think I could possibly preach for more than maybe two or three hours. (laughs) Well, as we once again prepare to dig into Matthew's gospel, I want to take a few moments to remind us of the context into which this passage falls. I know I do this pretty much every week, and I'll probably keep doing this as we move forward, because context is so crucial in understanding what we are studying. In fact, the first most important three rules of Bible study is one, context. Is two, context. And three, you may have guessed it, context. I also think it's worth taking a few minutes to remind us where we have been in this text because I expect that many of us haven't spent a lot of time in Matthew this week, either reviewing last week's sermon or looking ahead to what we'll be covering today and in the weeks moving forward. And so we need the reminder to be, we can get caught up, be reminded about where we're at in the flow of the narrative so that we can get as much as possible out of what we are studying today. So for a few weeks now, we have been looking at Jesus commissioning his disciples for the evangelistic gospel work, for the work of going throughout all the cities of Israel to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We began with Jesus' compassion, that Jesus, as he ministered in all the towns of the region, saw the people of Israel. They were lost and leaderless. They were being devoured by those who should have been shepherding them. They needed the good news of the kingdom of God, yet there were so few who could bring that message to them. So Jesus commissioned his disciples that they might themselves go out to bring this message to the people and that they might pray to the Lord of the harvest that God would raise up even more faithful messengers to go and proclaim this truth to the people. Jesus then began to prepare his disciples for what they would face as they brought the message of the kingdom across all the cities of Israel. They would face great danger, even from unexpected places. And so they needed to be wise in the ways of the world. They needed to understand the mindset of the people that they were going to try to reach. And yet at the same time, they needed to remain innocent of the world's evils. While some would believe their message, many would reject them, and still others would do everything they could to try and deliver them up to death 
because of their naming Christ. Jesus told his disciples that they shouldn't be surprised by anything that they face or anything they receive by way of persecution from the people of Israel. After all, they would just be treated the same way that their master had been treated. And a servant is not greater than his master, and a servant does not receive greater treatment than his master. As they went out, they did not need to be worried about what they would say. They would be dragged before governors and kings and councils. And they did not need to worry about what they would say because the Spirit of God would be with them and he would remind them what Christ had taught them. He would give them the words to say and they would be the witnesses of Christ before the nations because of the persecution of their own people. In all of this, Jesus greatly encouraged his disciples Their labor would not prove in vain. Their message would be clear. Their message would be understood, no longer hidden behind parables designed to keep them from hearing and understanding. The elect in Israel would hear and they would believe. No matter how much the disciples might be hated, there was nothing that their enemies could do to stop the message going forward. And there was nothing that their enemies could do to them that would not have to first be allowed by the sovereign, caring hand of their Father in heaven. Jesus gave them a great promise that if they endured, if they went out and faithfully confessed the name of Christ before all of these men and women and children, then Christ would confess them before their Father in heaven. But Jesus also warned them. There was much at stake as they went out to the people. Only those who endured until the end would be saved. Because some would start well and then falter and then give in to the pressure and fade away. The disciples should fear God, this God who could destroy body and soul in hell, more than they feared these men to whom they were going out to preach. Because the worst that Israel could do to them, the worst that the world could do to them, was destroy their body. They could kill them once. But God could destroy body and soul in hell forever. And Jesus warned them that if they buckled under the pressure, and if they failed to confess Christ before men, then Jesus would not confess them before their Father in heaven, and they would not have an advocate standing before the throne. So as Jesus sent them out, he gave them words of promise, encouragement, and warning. Well, in our passage this morning, we will see that the arrival of the Messiah wasn't meant to look like what Israel had been expecting. That Jesus didn't come with the intentions and the desired intentions. He didn't come with the desired plan that the Jewish leaders of the day had for him or had for the Messiah. And because of that, the cost of following him would be greater than anyone could possibly have imagined. I ask you to join me in prayer as we make ourselves ready to study God's holy, inspired, and perfect word. Father, we come to you as we always do, a needy people. 
Yet we know our weakness, we know our need. And in our weakness and in our need, Christ is made perfect. Because we rely on him truly and fully. We ask that your spirit would do what he has promised to do. To give us understanding, to open eyes, to open ears, that we might see, we might hear, that we might believe the words of Christ. That as needed, we would be rebuked. As needed, we would be corrected. As needed, we would be encouraged. As needed, we would be strengthened. That new life might even be given through the preaching of this word. Even as conviction falls on those who are in sin. Be glorified this morning, Father. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So after warning his disciples about the cost of denying him before men, Jesus said something that no doubt would have come as quite a shock to those who heard him. In verse 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. If we look at what Luke included, Luke actually included something before that statement in his gospel. In Luke 12, 49, he said, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. If the image of sword wasn't enough to show that there was some aggressive purpose in the coming of Christ, the language of came coming to cast fire on the earth should clear that up for us. Jesus said he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He came to cast fire on the earth. So instead of coming with an olive branch that might have signified the end of hostilities, Jesus brought a sword. He brought an instrument of warfare. And not a shield that would be a sign of protection and defense, but an offensive weapon. Because Jesus came, there would be conflict. There would be battle. And he came armed and prepared. Of course, you might ask, why would that message, why would that statement from Christ have been so shocking to disciples when they heard it? Well, it's because the people of Israel had expectations that when the Messiah came, he would bring peace. And when the Messiah came, their struggle was supposed to be over. They had suffered much as a nation for centuries. They had fallen to one oppressor after another, and they were resolutely steadfast that when the Messiah came, that cycle of violence was going to be over. They expected the Messiah to come and unite them to come and be their champion and to throw off the yoke of the nations. Of course, where did they get that idea? Let's look at a couple places that should be pretty familiar. Isaiah 2.4, 
He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. One that we remember every Christmas, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth to forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So when the Messiah came, they were going to have no longer any need for weapons. There wasn't going to be any more wars to fight. After all, he was coming as the Prince of Peace. His government and his peace would be without end. We even see that kind of expectation echoed after the birth of Christ as the angels proclaimed to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So clearly there was good reason to expect that the coming of the Messiah would bring about peace. So what's going on here then? How can it be that the Prince of Peace didn't actually come to bring peace? Is there a contradiction here? Or are we, or was Israel missing something? I think it'll be helpful for us to make a distinction between what the nation of Israel understood when they spoke of peace and what scripture actually promised with the arrival of the Messiah. Definitions are important. That should be as obvious to us now as ever. We can't really understand what someone is saying unless we know what they mean by the words that they use. That is why it is so difficult to talk to people from different ideological persuasions, even people in our own community, because we know that even if we use the same words, we mean something drastically different by them. Israel wanted a Messiah that would come and bring peace like their fathers had been promised peace in the days of Jeremiah. They, they wanted the promise of freedom and prosperity. They wanted a peace that didn't concern itself with the hardness of their hearts. Their fathers had loved to have peace spoken over them. Though calamity was all about the city, they were comforted by words of peace. Peace. Completely divorced from their idolatry and failure. And so too did the generation that of Jesus desired to be, have peace proclaimed over them at the arrival of the conquering king when he arrived in splendor. When the people of Israel thought of peace, it was only in relation to foreign oppressors, to the world that was around them. So in the first century, that was the Roman Empire. And so they expected if somebody were to bring peace, as the Messiah was supposed to bring peace, that he must come and throw off the yoke of their Roman oppressors. 
that there could be no peace until that happened. So they looked for a mighty champion who would partner with their civil and religious leaders to unite the people and win the day. Of course, that understanding of peace misses something far more important to the nation of Israel at that time. Yet they were concerned only about about being at peace with men. And even then, they had no desire to live in harmony with other men. They just wanted to be free from them, to be left alone. Of course, we must ask, what was the greatest threat in the first century to the nation of Israel? The greatest threat to Israel at the arrival of the Messiah was that they were not at peace with God. In fact, they were on the very knife's edge of disaster. As John the Baptist came warning before the Messiah came and took on the same message, John had warned them that the axe was already at the root of the tree. Destruction was already coming. Judgment was there. It was urgent that he needed to respond. So to that presumptuous people, demanding peace from their enemies, while yet themselves being enemies of God, Jesus had a very hard message. He had not come to bring them the peace that they so desired, the freedom from Rome. He had come with a very different kind of peace to offer. The peace that Jesus offered was a peace that would cause division and conflict. Instead of uniting the people together under a common hatred of Rome, Jesus brought a way to peace with God that would irreparably separate those who accepted him from those who rejected him. That would irreparably separate the spiritual offspring of Abraham from those only of his blood. Calvin commented on this passage about the greatness of the depravity of corrupt nature This greatness of depravity in those who used the message of the gospel, this wonderful, impossible message of hope, and they used that as a motivation to hostility. He said it is not that they they not only spat upon such an unimaginable gift, but they changed it into a most destructive evil. Because we must remember that for a broken sinner... For someone who is aware of their sin, is broken by their sin, peace with God is a gift beyond imagination. It is a gift beyond hope. It is something that is, would be greater than anything else they could imagine. And yet for the self-righteous, that same offer, that same offer of being at peace with God is seen as an evil lie, one that they will violently fight against. The peace of Jesus was a sword. Again, look at verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. As we said, Jesus did not come to bring the peace that Israel expected. 
He came to address something much more important than the oppression that they had suffered under the hands of the Romans and before them the Greeks and before them nation after nation. Their state was far worse than they imagined. They were at enmity with God, and as a nation, they were soon to reap what they had for centuries sowed. Into that desperate situation where the axe was at the root of the tree, Jesus brought the means of escape, not just a temporal escape from Rome, but the means of an eternal escape from the wrath of God. And that message, that message of the kingdom that demanded repentance, exposed the deadness of the hearts of Israel's leaders. The message of woe and the message of life was the sword that would invariably cause conflict and division. The difference between rejecting Christ and receiving him were night and day. Those who rejected would want to kill the messenger. Even family members would want to destroy, to actually to hand over their family members to death. And those who actually believed would give up everything. And that's, just, that's not hyperbole. They actually gave up everything to follow the Messiah. How could that not bring division? When accepting made you want to give up everything, willing to die, to suffer at the hands of your family members, and rejecting made you want to kill the other person. Or we can think about it like this. Jesus did not come to make peace with the world. He came to bring a clash of kingdoms. Jesus was born king. His rule and his kingdom were a threat, an existential threat to the established powers of the earth. Where opposing kingdoms clash, there can be no peace either without radical compromise or total victory. The God of this world acting through both Rome and the leaders of Israel would not and could not tolerate the ascendancy of God's kingdom and his king. Of course, what compromise could there be between Jesus and Satan? Could King Jesus compromise in order to make peace with the scribes and Pharisees? Could he compromise to make peace with men who valued the traditions of men rather than the commands of God? Could Jesus make peace with men who continued to be idolaters, blasphemers, murderers, adulterers, liars, and thieves? Could Jesus, the Holy One of God, could he compromise with sin in order to find some way to, com to get along, to coexist in peace? Well, the obvious answer to all these questions is no. Jesus could not compromise with sin. There could be no peace between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven. Coexistence was not an option. So the sword, not the olive branch, was needed. 
The king with his kingdom came to secure a domain and an absolute reign. That absolute reign that Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied so long ago, that of his kingdom and of his justice, of his reign, there would be no end. He did not come just to secure for himself and a few people a piece of the pie. He did not come to procure a partnership with world leaders. And he did not come to merely win for his people a tolerated existence. The king came with a sword. Jesus came with a radical message and he placed a radical call on everybody who would be a citizen of his kingdom. And they must be prepared for war. They must be prepared to face abuse on account of his name, on account of the gospel of the kingdom. They must be prepared to give their lives. Jesus pressed further into this imagery of conflict in 35 and 36. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Again, just as we saw last week, in the expectation that family members would turn one another in over even to death because of the gospel, we, this text again draws us back to Micah 7. Micah 7, 5, and 6. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Well, as a price of following Jesus, his disciples could expect that even their closest family members might turn on them. That even their closest family members might deliver them over to death. And here, in this verse here, Jesus explains that this phenomenon of family member turning against family member is not simply an unfortunate byproduct of their decision to follow the oft-rejected Messiah. This wasn't an accidental occurrence that just happened to fall after they became obedient to Christ. According to Jesus, there was intention in his words and his actions to create division within the nation of Israel. Jesus said he came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and so on. Again, this would have been a very shocking revelation the Messiah of the Jews came to bring division among the Jews. Well, if we're going to understand Jesus' intention, the purpose in his creating division among the people, we need to remember something of the makeup and the history of the nation of Israel. Israel was indeed chosen as a nation to be God's people, to be his possession among the nations of the earth. And yet... As we look through the history of Israel in the Old Testament, we see that a great many among that nation did not follow God. 
did not obey his laws, did not trust in the promises of their God. We see regularly in the Old Testament that a large portion of the nation was apostate, completely sold out to idolatry, offering their children up in the flames as a sacrifice to a pagan god. Yet there was also always a faithful remnant that God kept from idolatry. Paul, in his letters to the Romans, would comment on this situation. Paul differentiated between those who were the offspring of Abraham according to Abraham's faith and those who were offspring of Abraham merely by the flesh. Those who had the faith of Abraham were the descendants of the promise that was given to Abraham. The promise that his descendants would be as the stars in the heaven, that, that he would have a seed that would be a blessing to the nations. Those who were not of the faith of Abraham were something else. Until the arrival of the Messiah, the nation of Israel needed to be preserved. God had a purpose for this nation. She had a part to play in the redemption of man and in the blessing of all of the nations promised to their first father, Abraham. And so along with the faithful remnant, many unfaithful Jews were also preserved through the centuries. In Jesus' day, these unfaithful Jews dominated the religious and civil leadership of the nation as well as a great many of the common people. Remember the early message of John the Baptist. Judgment was close at hand. The winnowing fork was in hand. The wheat needed to be separated from the chaff. The descendants of Abraham, according to the promise, needed to be separated from those who were only of the flesh. True Israel from apostate Israel. And so Jesus really did come to set son against father and daughter against mother. He came to separate the faithful remnant of Israel who was waiting for the Messiah of God as he had been promised from the apostate Israel who desired something very different. He came so that the wheat might be gathered into the barn before the chaff was burned away. And such was the state of the nation that the only thing needed to bring this kind of division was the good news that the kingdom of God had arrived. That's all it took to bring this kind of radical division, this radical split among the nation of Israel that would cause some to deliver their family members even to death. All it took was to proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand. The very thing they said to have been desiring and waiting for and praying for was here. The Messiah was here. Everyone who recognized their sin, who believed the message of repent, believed the message of judgment that was coming, to all of them, this message was from life to life. Yet everyone else refused the truth and rejected the hope they claimed to be waiting for 
And to them, this message of hope in the kingdom was from death to death. And all of it was a soothing aroma to God. Jesus came to earth as the perfect fulfillment of the nation of Israel. He was the promised seed of Abraham. The prophets, priests, and kings that came before him all were but shadows pointing toward the one who could come and fulfill all of those offices, who could be all that the people needed. Those descendants of Abraham who welcomed their Messiah's king saw the fulfillment of the purpose and hope of their nation. Those who rejected him were cut off and a short time later would be destroyed. And it is to that Israel, that true Israel made up of those who are of the promise of Abraham, the true descendants of Abraham, it is to that Israel that you and I, by faith in Christ, are grafted in. Well, to the hard reality that Jesus intended to bring division to the nation of Israel, Jesus once again spoke of the total claim that he made on his disciples. Whoever loves father or more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Of course, this isn't the first time that Jesus has made some kind of strong, bold, radical claim on the lives of his disciples. All through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave a seemingly impossible standard to which they were called. They must have a righteousness even greater than the Pharisees. They were to be the salt and light in society, to, to flavor and preserve the world and to give light to the gospel of God. They were to obey God's commandments even in their thoughts and the intentions of their hearts. They couldn't just keep themselves from acting out in sin. They had to purify themselves from sin within. There was no part of the disciples' life that they could claim as their own. Christ claimed total ownership over all of it. They had to be singularly devoted to Christ. They could not serve two masters. They were to let go of the worry about the things of the world that the Gentiles chase and instead seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness. All that they had already heard. And now Jesus told them that if they loved father or mother or son or daughter more than him, they were not worthy of him. Luke records this, this uh, teaching of Christ in even stronger language. He recorded that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And because we so often need to state the obvious, Jesus wasn't telling his disciples that they had to hate everyone they loved the most if they were going to follow him. That would be an absurd claim when he has already told them that they needed to love even their enemies. 
And certainly Jesus would not condemn what is elsewhere commanded and commended in Scripture. Parents must love their children. Children must love and honor their parents. Matthew and Luke both record a message with the same meaning from Jesus. A a message that would have been clearly understood by those who heard him according to their common usage of language and the way that they emphasize things in their speech. The message is this, that the disciples' love of Jesus must surpass, must greatly surpass, even the strongest and most natural love that one would have for their parents, for their spouse, or for their children. Of all the radical claims that Jesus would place on his disciples' life, this one might be the most extreme. It may go most against their nature. One commentator stated that this saying of Jesus is either that of the Messiah or a maniac. That is, to be able to make this kind of demand on another person, someone would have to be either certifiably insane or they would have to be God. The gospel would bring division even between family members. The disciples were promised this. His disciples must love him even more than they love parent or child because it was very possible that they were going to have to make that decision. They were going to have to choose their family or choose the Messiah, the hope of their nation. Family or Christ. In that context, and in many contexts throughout the history of the church, unless God saved everyone in the family, when some were embraced Jesus as the promised Messiah of God, division would separate them from even their closest relations. So unless a follower of Jesus loved him more, they would not be able to bear that separation. And so therefore, they would not be able to bear the cost of discipleship. And as if that cost of discipleship was not already high enough, Jesus continued, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. To put it another way, to embrace Christ is to embrace martyrdom. Matthew 16, 24, when Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And beloved, when we talk about embracing the cross, we need to understand what it meant to this first century Jew living under Roman oppression. It is far too easy for us, separated from these events by 2,000 years and from probably a century since public executions were in vogue, to miss the significance of this. For us, the cross has been sanitized. 
either because when we look at the cross, we see the love of our Lord, or because it's become little more than a symbol of our religion. In reality, the cross was a monstrously grotesque device of torture and execution. The cross was a tool used by the Romans to kill slowly and painfully so that their victims could suffer and that they could contemplate for a long period of time what brought them to that end. That they could contemplate as they suffered in agony, sometimes over days, over just who had the power to put them there. But that's only part of the horror of the cross. The cross was also a powerful psychological instrument to dominate entire people groups. Just as the length of time that it took to die when crucified gave the victim time to agonize in their suffering, it also gave everyone who saw the person suffering on the cross time to contemplate, contemplate the price of crossing Rome. By design, Rome's victims, whether they were criminals or political enemies, were crucified in public places to maximize the effect that their execution would reach on the people where the public shame and horror could have its greatest effect. Often the Romans would crucify people along roadways. At times there would have been miles of roads lined with people hanging on crosses. When there was a revolt of, of gladiators and the story of Spartacus, there was many miles and many thousands of when once defeated prisoners hung on crosses along the road so everybody could see the power of Rome and what happens to their enemies. We can only begin to imagine the kind of psychological impact that would have had on Jesus' disciples at that time. Especially, and this is somewhere it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes, because they did not yet understand that the Messiah would need to die. The disciples did not yet know that the Messiah would die on a cross. There was not yet any redemptive imagery to apply to the crucifixion. It was only an object of horror and dread. So these disciples didn't even yet know that Jesus was telling them to do something that he would do for them to bear the cross on their behalf, and they were told to take up this instrument of torture and death and follow him. They were called to bear on their own body the means of their torture and destruction. The following Christ means that one must recognize what their faithfulness to him may bring them and that they carry the means of their own destruction with them and they proclaim the means of their own destruction to everyone who will hear. Embracing Christ means embracing martyrdom. Calvin urged, urged Christians to connect closely the bearing of one's cross with following Jesus. He, that we must not separate the two. There is no following Christ without carrying the cross. He wrote, let us therefore learn to connect these two things. 
that believers must bear the cross in order to follow their master. That is, in order to conform to his example and to abide by his footsteps like faithful companions. And beloved, may we not be guilty of such foolish nonsense as to trivialize what it means to bear the cross. Your child not sleeping well at night is not your cross to bear. Don't trivialize the suffering of Christ. Don't trivialize the suffering that Christ calls his disciples to for their faithfulness. It is a good work to endure with long suffering and love, having to stay up night after night with your children. That is good and commendable, but that is not bearing your cross. Jesus continued, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. One commentator helped clarify this verse by pointing to a classical Greek expression that would have been understood by Jesus and his disciples. He wrote, those who lose their their soul or their life, whether in actual martyrdom or self-disciplined denial, will find it in the age to come. Those who find it, saying that that expression of find it in classical Greek means to win or to preserve it. Those who find it or win or preserve it by living for themselves and refusing to submit to the demands of Christian discipleship lose it in the age to come. Well, that sounds right in line with what Jesus told the disciples in John 12, 25, and 26. Whoever loses his life, whoever loves me, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Does that sound like the disciple of Christ is to live our best life now? The world promises purpose, happiness, and peace right here and now if we will just go along with the flow. Many wolves in the church promise much the same thing. Come to Christ, be a part of the church, give to the church, and you will be blessed and happy and have all that you need and what you want, and you will be fulfilled. Wicked men, draw your eyes to what can be obtained and enjoyed now. And they teach you to give no thought to eternity or to future generations. And yet Christ calls his disciples by faith to forsake everything now that they might obtain everything in the age to come. When we consider what Jesus promised to his disciples, it kind of sounds like Jesus wasn't very good at recruiting, doesn't it? Jesus offers peace, but it is not the kind of peace that the world understands or wants. He offers life, though following him might cost you your life. He offers hope, though it is on the other end of what might and probably will be a lifetime of suffering and persecution. 
and that even at the hands of your family members and countrymen. Whoever finds his life, whoever wins or preserves his life will lose it. The striving after those things that are temporal will cost you the things that are eternal. If we spend ourselves and our lives seeking to establish our wealth, our identity, our standing, to protect what we have, to prosper in this life, for this life, we will lose everything. And even if somebody succeeds beyond the normal hope of man and gains the whole world, and yet they lose their soul, what good have they gained for themselves? What good is it to be the richest man on the world, to be sending rockets into space, if you deny the Son of God? It'll be punished in eternal flame. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is no doubt true in a literal sense, as in those who are martyred because of their faith in Christ and their obedience to Christ, those people will find eternal life. But that is also true in a day-to-day sense. If we die daily to self, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, we will find our life in Christ and we will find a life that no one can take from us no matter what they do to the body. And I often wonder if that is not the more difficult path. To die in a moment of glorious obedience and martyrdom is over in a moment. But most of us will be called to endure day after day, year after year, to slowly and continually die to self. So where do we go with this paradigm shift? I'm assuming for most of us this is a bit of a paradigm shift. Christ came to bring division. For one, we need to recognize that there can be no coexistence, not ultimately, between the kingdom of heaven and the rebellious powers of this earth. There can be no peace without the total victory of the gospel and of the kingdom of God. There can be no peace without total victory. And that is, after all, the great moment to which all of history is building. Jesus would not, and therefore we cannot, compromise with sin. All too often, those who claim to follow Christ have thought themselves wiser than Christ and tried to make peace with the world by means of compromise. Either because they lacked faith in the gospel's ability to conquer every stronghold, or they lacked the willingness to persevere under pressure. I want us to give give us a few examples of the times that professing Christians have sought to compromise with sin, to compromise with the kingdom of this world, and the kind of drastic results that followed. 
professing Christians compromised with sin by laying down their sword, laying down the sword of the word, when the world told them that they no longer recognized God's ability to command. So they stopped using God's word. They stopped arguing, thus says the Lord, which led to them being completely unarmed in the countless battles that they would face and led to further compromise. Professing Christians tried to make peace with godless ideologies and theories concerning the creation of the universe. Tried to make peace with the world with godless ideas and so they embraced the ideas of millions and billions of years rather than holding fast to the clear teaching of scripture that God created everything in six normal days. And their compromise with sin opened the door for many future compromises. Professing Christians tried to compromise to make peace with society by putting women behind pulpits in the churches. Professing Christians have compromised by accepting the the impossibility of objective truth. They gave in on the idea that there is objective truth that we can know for sure anything. They compromised by accepting the lie that all societies are created equal. They made peace with cultural pressure and the state dictating when and where it was acceptable to be a Christian, to accept the idea of the division between the sacred and the secular. Beloved, we are called to be at war with the powers of darkness in this life. And we have the example before us that if we are faithful to the cause of Christ, we will elicit a violent response from his enemies. You don't have to go on the offensive trying to insult and offend people, rubbing their faces in their sin. If you simply are faithful to Christ and faithful to the message of the gospel, you will elicit a violent response from them. Our faithfulness will bring conflict and division. And we cannot compromise our way to peace. We cannot labor for the advance of the conquering kingdom and at the same time expect that the servants of the enemy will let us us simply be. Think about that. To the world, to the world system, to the God of this world, we are citizens of an invading kingdom. To those who love their sin, the gospel represents the greatest threat imaginable. It is only transformed into the hope of life and peace to those who recognize their sin is the great offense against God that it is. Christ did not and would not make peace with evil in his day. He would not make peace with people who had abused and killed God's messengers in the past and were preparing to kill his son. Jesus did not come to make peace with the God of this world and all who remained blinded by him. He came to conquer, even by his death. So following his example, we cannot compromise with evil in hopes that it will bring us to peace with this world. We all too often try to win the approval of all 
by laying down our arms, just as Christians have done before us, by accepting the enemy's standards and definitions. We all too often accept by our actions, if not by our words, that popular opinion is the arbiter of right and wrong, natural and perverse. We cannot continue in the failures of the generations in the church before us. We must stand resolute and meet the challenges of our day. We cannot compromise on the abomination that is legalized abortion. Sadly, even most of the leadership of the so-called pro-life movement has compromised on the issue of abortion. Time and again, the leaders of the pro-life movement have stood against any kind of legislation or movement that tried to bring about equal protection for the unborn and for the already born. There have actually been times when, when states were considering moving forward with this kind of legislation and they were told, even conservative Republicans were told by the pro-life movement, do not pass these bills. Do not let this go forward. Why? Because of compromising with sin. Because to go the whole way, to be faithful to what scripture would call us to, it was too difficult. That if, if, you would, if we truly recognize what everyone who calls themselves pro-life claims to believe that a human, an unborn human is just as much in the image of God and valuable as a born human, that if we give them equal protection, then we have to do something about all these people that have murdered their children. That the doctors and the mothers who murder their own children are no longer innocent victims, but they are murderers. We cannot make those kind of compromises with sin to say things that are not true in order to make that more palatable. It is a perversion of justice. We cannot compromise on LGBT issues. No matter how much pressure we face from the world, no matter how much it costs us, we cannot seek to be at peace with the world by giving in to their demands. And so we must continue to call sin, sin. And we must continue to call what up, until, what up until five minutes ago was universally regarded as mental illness. We need to continue to call that mental illness. These people wanting to mutilate their bodies or mutilate their children are disturbed. It's grotesque. We must call it what it is. We must not be bullied into speaking lies as though it was the truth. Just because a man puts a dress on and tries to grow his hair out does not make him a woman. Honor women more than that. The beauty and wonder that God created in woman, male and female, he made of them. Do not so slander the design of God and the creation of man and woman that we will call somebody something they are not. Do not speak lies when you know them to be a lie. And that will cost people things. That will cost people their jobs. It will cost people their public influence and acceptability. But we cannot compromise with sin in thinking that it'll buy us a peace. 
It will not buy us peace. The world will want more. Better to speak the truth and let the conflict come as it was designed. Beloved, we do not wield the weapons of this world, yet we are nonetheless at war. We cannot be faithful to Christ and remain at peace with this world. The truth will divide. The truth is intended to divide. Like Jesus' disciples before us, we need to understand what faithfulness to Christ will cost us in the midst of a perverse generation. And we must persevere. Calvin wrote this, Christ is here exhorting his disciples to perseverance. Though a good part of the world should be at variance with them, and though their voice should be like a war trumpet call to innumerable enemies to arm. So beloved, persevere in following Christ. Persevere in confessing Christ before men. Persevere in carrying your cross. Persevere even though the call of the gospel is and will be a war trumpet calling all of the enemies of Christ to come and attack us. The gospel will divide. It will bring conflict. Yet judgment is coming. And there is no hope for salvation in anything else. Father, we thank you for even harder, difficult passages. We thank you for strong words and clear warnings in Scripture. Father, maybe heed these warnings that even as the Christ's disciples were to look ahead to see what was coming for them, in many ways, Christians have faced the same kinds of struggles throughout the centuries. And as in the generation that we live is getting more evil, more wicked, more vile, we can expect that we will increasingly experience the same. Father, let us not strive for conflict, but let us be ready and, and welcome it, knowing that your truth will bring division. And may we have the answers and trust that your spirit will give us the words to say. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.